John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. For the last two weeks, we've looked at Lazarus' miracle, and we've called it a surprise. Six surprises in the seventh sign. If surprise was an adequate description for that miracle, then one word I choose for today's passage is beautiful. It's not a miracle. It's not an eighth sign. Instead, it's a scene at a dinner table. It's sheer beauty. It's an act that Scripture says will be remembered forever. Our outline is simple this morning. Three points. First, we see extravagant devotion. Second, we'll see deceptive greed, which is a bit of an oxymoron. I think greed is always deceptive. And then third, we'll see a futile plan. Devotion, greed, and a plan. Number one, extravagant devotion, verses one through three. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. We'll stop there. We know that in these verses, the clock is ticking towards Jesus' death. A week before Passover, his final days, he takes a stop over in Bethany on his way to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. Mary and Martha live there. Oh, and... The brother Lazarus as well. And in case you forgot, John wants us to remember that he's the guy that rose from the dead. Verse 2, they host a dinner for Jesus and his disciples. Mary's there. Martha is serving per her usual. It may have been their house, but this is likely the same account in Matthew and Mark. And so this probably the house of Simon the leper. Now, he no longer had leprosy. He was healed, but that name stuck with him. Think about for a moment who's at this dinner table. Simon, who was once legally dead as a leper, and you have Lazarus, one who was once physically dead and placed in a grave. Must have been some interesting dinner table banter, I'm sure. Simon, what was it like to see your fingers just grow back? To see your skin and muscle tissue reform? To which Lazarus responds, Simon, that's great and all, but you've got nothing on me. I died. I was raised from the dead. I was dead. I was double dead. Four days dead. Surely no one could top that experience at that dinner table. 
Well, in this culture, you would have had a very low table, and the way you would have reclined or sat at the table would, would be on your, on your elbow like this and your legs sticking out away from the table. That would be the normal setup. Now, remember, this is the Middle East. It's a hot culture, sandy, dirty, no spray deodorant, no private baths or showers or running water. Probably no toothbrushes. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means people smell bad. That's just the honest truth. People were, were smelly. It's also why perfume was used so often. It was not uncommon for you to go to a home and for the host to take a bit of perfume and anoint your forehead with it. It would, it would help with, with the smell. But this isn't just a little dab of perfume, is it? Verse 3, Mary takes a pound of expensive ointment, several hundred milliliters. This was made from pure nard. It came from an expensive aromatic plant found in India or perhaps Nepal. It was a complicated extracting process combined with this import expense made it very costly. This was not something you just went down to the local car for to pick up after the church service. This was the fancy stuff. You probably mix something like one part nard and 50 parts water to make a perfume. A pound might last your entire lifetime. Mary takes this precious nard and shows extravagant devotion to Jesus. How? Well, first, Mary pours out the ointment. All of it. Matthew and Mark's gospel say she broke the jar. And when you break the container, it all points, it all pours out. She wasn't saving anything. At chapter, uh, here in chapter 12, verse 5, it actually tells us the cost. 300 denarii. Now, think about what a living wage would have normally been in those days. It was about one denarii a day. And you would not work on the Sabbath and so 300 denarii was the equivalent of one year's worth of salary. This is an extravagant ointment. Even if this family was wealthy, this was a lot. It may have been the family's most valuable possession, even a family heirloom, and she pours it all out. Second, Mary anoints Jesus' feet. Again, remember, we're, we're here in the Middle East. It's hot, it's sandy. Dealing with other people's feet was such a lowly task. It was something that you could not even require your servant to do. The other gospel accounts mention that Jesus' head was also anointed. How do we reconcile those two accounts? Well, I think D.A. Carson points it out well, that the amount of nard used was considerable, and hence the anointing was likely to have extended beyond the head to the feet. John here wants us to focus on the feet. He's showing that her act was a most self-humbling act of extravagant devotion and love. Well, third, Mary untied her hair. I look around the room today and I see many women with their head down, but in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago, for a woman to untie and drop her hair in public was a disgrace. 
There was even a law that if a married woman untied her hair in public, it was scandalous. It was a grounds for divorce. Your hair was symbolic of your glory. And fourth, Mary uses her hair as a towel for Jesus' feet. At this point, everyone's shocked. Everyone's already shocked. Jaws are dropped to the floor, and now she rubs Jesus' feet with her very own hair. I mean, this is astonishing. What is Mary doing? Well, she was looking at Jesus, and she was saying, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I know that Jesus deserves all my honor, all my devotion, all my things, all my everything. She's saying that there's no act of devotion to Jesus that's beneath her. This extravagant devotion abandons any pride, any dignity. She abandons it all to honor Jesus with everything she is and everything she has. I wonder what she was thinking in the moment. We don't see it in the text. Is this a gift that she was planning for some time? Was it something she decided that day? Was she thinking about what type of gift to give Jesus? Maybe a new shirt, but that can't be right. He's always wearing that long robe of his. Do I give him money? Well, that can't be it. Well, instead, that evening she grabs what's most likely her most treasured and expensive thing that she owns. And Mary gives Jesus her best. She gives her all. It's literally all poured out on him and for him. And her glory, her hair, becomes a rag for Jesus. She lays down her glory for another. And I love the last statement of verse 3. The house was filled it was all poured out, so the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Her act, it was so sweet and so plentiful that it pervaded, that that smell pervaded the entire house. Mary says, I'm giving my money, I'm giving my dignity, my rights, I'm giving it all away to Jesus. Everything I am and everything I have is yours. A friend, how does the story resonate with you? What are you thinking about when you hear these verses read and explained? What would you give to Jesus? Would you give up your most valued possession? Money, your job? A relationship, your status, reputation, would you give it to Jesus? Now, I don't know what your monthly or annual wages are. Maybe it's 1,000 dirhams a month, 3,000, 5,000, 10, 20, 50. I don't know what it is. It's probably different for each of us. But multiply that monthly wage by 12. What would you think if on your birthday someone gave you a bottle of perfume or cologne worth a whole year's worth of your income? What if it had become your family's most valuable possession? Now, most of us don't have possessions laying around that are equivalent to our annual salary. 
It's not normal. Well, here's another question. Is Jesus worthy of all that you have and all that you are? Is he worthy? Do you live like Jesus is more valuable to you than anything else this world has to offer? Let me ask that again. Are you living in such a way that shows yourself and the world that Jesus is your most treasured possession? Have you seen the king in all his beauty? Because when you have, when you see him the way Mary sees him, you're willing to give up everything for him. As Jim Elliott, the missionary to Ecuador, has famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott and his four friends ended up giving their lives to bring the gospel to a people group in South America. They were killed tragically upon connecting with the tribe. These men were willing to give up their lives because Jesus was worth more to them than their very lives. A follower of Christ has a different accounting system than the rest of the world. We live by different principles than the world does. We make decisions at times that make no sense to the world. Following Christ means that we joyfully give away what we can't keep, savings, things, health, even our lives, to gain what we cannot lose. Oh, friends, if you're a follower of Christ, you cannot lose the salvation that he's given you. He is keeping you for that final day. If you're a follower of Christ, eternity awaits 100%. He keeps you for that salvation. You cannot lose it. Friend, if you follow Christ, your salvation and eternal life can never be taken away from you. We may lose relationships and reputations here on earth. We may lose a job. We may lose our health. We could lose everything and still be okay. Why? Well, because this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But friends, Redeemer Church, listen to this. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, the things that are unseen are eternal, everlasting, never-ending a forever truth. Redeemer Church, don't settle for the lie of Dubai. Don't settle for the lie of this world, which tells you accumulate more things, make more money, climb the corporate ladder, always do what's good for your career, buy the fanciest car, make it big. No, instead, let Mary be your example. Let Mary be your hero today. Follow this hero of the faith who had an extravagant devotion to Jesus. Well, friend, maybe you have some Marys in your life, some Marys who've inspired you to an extravagant devotion to Christ. They've inspired you to live for God. I have several. I have several in a few different areas. One comes to mind in the area of radical generosity. About five years ago, Gloria and I were sitting in our flat around the dining room table with a, a new friend named John. 
John had just started a new ministry called Gospel Patrons. Their goal was to help Christians in the workplace steward their wealth and give away their wealth to ministry needs around the world. He was telling us about the ministry, but what impacted us most was how John and his wife Renee were leading out as an example by faith. They had already adopted two children from Ethiopia, but then most recently they had seen uh, a copy of how the Jesus film was being used among tribes in Ethiopia. And they heard of a specific people group, the Dasanach people group, that make up 0.07% of the Ethiopian population. And yet a people group that had been primarily unreached at that point, most illiterate, most had never heard the gospel, and God put it on John and Renee's hearts to cash out their retirement account. And each month for three years, they made payments to have the Jesus film translated into the Dasanach dialect. After it was translated, the Jesus film invited them to the premiere. They put up a screen in the middle of a field in one of the villages. People were lining up and coming hours beforehand because this was the very first movie in the history of their language. And so they all gathered in the village, goat herders, villagers, people far and wide, sitting and standing and watching the greatest news in the world via the form of a film. And many responded in faith in Christ. For John and Renee, their extravagant devotion was giving their all to Jesus so that that tribe could hear the gospel. Friend, could God be calling you to a radical generosity? I've been inspired by financial generosity. I've also been inspired by relational generosity. For some of us, giving money away is a challenge, but for others, it's easy. For others, it's easy. For, for, for many of us, it's more difficult to give up of our time. It's more difficult to love the unloved. It's the giving of our time to care for the hurting. That's challenging. I think of our friends Brady and Amber, who had worked for years at the Home of Hope in Beirut, Lebanon, teaching and caring for and loving abandoned street children. Our dear friends fostered and then adopted a teenage boy, one who didn't speak English at first, one who had been through much trauma and abuse over his childhood. They brought him into their home, and they fought weekly for his rights. Because when you're a street child in Lebanon, you have no passport. You have no paperwork. You have nothing that says your name on it. To the country and to the rest of the world, you don't exist. You're not a real person. So Brady and Amber fought for their son, and just this year, after six years, received for him a stateless passport. Still no country willing to claim them, but a document with his name on it. Dignity. Six years of praying and crying and fighting and hoping. They finally got it. They sent us a, a picture of it, and we celebrated with our friends. And then by an absolute miracle, through connections made from Brady's street art projects, after that big blast 
that happened in Lebanon 18 months ago. They received a visa for their son to travel out of the U.S. And for the first time in these six years, they were able to travel anywhere together as a family. Those sleepless nights, those fights, sometimes even physical, the threats, the challenges, the difficulty of this adoption felt insurmountable to our friends. Horrific nights. Most days were rough, and yet they poured out everything for Jesus. They gave their time, they gave their health, they gave their money. They broke the flask. They broke the box for the sake of that one soul. Well, friend, could God be calling you today to a radical love? Or how about giving up of your safety or comfort zone for Jesus? Years ago, Gloria and I attended a meeting for ministry workers. It wasn't a large group. There were really just about 10 of us sitting in a room. And uh, over about five days, each of us shared our stories of ministry. There was a 64-year-old Japanese woman retiring from the mission field. She had arrived in Kazakhstan as a single 51-year-old. And in her 50s, she learned Russian and Kazakh. She took up this task and gave away those years of her life in order to love that city and those people with the love of Jesus. Another couple at the meeting lived in another nearby country, and they shared how the wife had been attacked by dogs. In Dubai, we don't have many stray dogs, but we have stray cats everywhere. You get a taste of that. You can see cat gangs in Murdoch and Garhud and Sharjah. Well, in their country, you had dog gangs. And on her street, she had been, been attacked by a group of dogs. When many would shrink back after a terrifying incident like that, they were making plans to head back for the sake of the gospel. Well, the last family sitting in our group could only vaguely share about their ministry in South Asia. It was in their city that a family member faced severe and extreme trauma and tragedy. And yet through the tears, they talked about their family moving to another city in that same country which needed the gospel. And I think now of a friend, Adam. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, he had come to faith in Christ in our church, was traveling back. He's now back in his home country with the hopes of sharing the gospel with his family and others. Oh, friend, could God be calling you to give up your preferences, to give up your health, to give up your safety, to give up your comfort zone for the sake of his name? Maybe there's a specific way you know deep down in your heart and yet you've been holding back. Maybe you've been resisting that call. Maybe there's a way that you could serve God with your time, talent, and treasure that's motivated by how much Jesus loves you and how much you love him. Maybe your next step is a conversation asking for forgiveness from a person you've sinned against or forgiving someone who sinned against you. I don't know what it is for you, friend, Redeemer Church. What is God calling you to do today? Maybe it's not as dramatic as one of those stories I've shared, but maybe it is. 
Let's not dumb down this text. Let's not diminish this extraordinary act of devotion that we see here by Mary. Let's not diminish her act of extravagant devotion by making our application so ordinary. This woman gave it all. That's the point. But I suppose even so, it's helpful to start with a simpler question. How can I give Jesus my all today? What does my extravagant devotion to Christ look like today? Let me mention two ways we could start today living as if Jesus is the king of our hearts. You see, extravagant devotion doesn't just show up one day all of a sudden. Mary's act of giving away everything doesn't just show up one day. She wakes up in the morning and all of a sudden is devoted to Jesus. No, extravagant devotion comes after day after day after day of living with Jesus as the king of our hearts. And so let me mention two ways that we can start today. Number one, give Jesus your best time today and every day to pray and to study the scriptures. Let's start here, giving the best of our day and every day to pray and to study the scriptures. Church, if Jesus is worthy of everything, he's certainly worthy of our prayers. Are you giving extravagant amounts of time to Jesus to study his word and to pray? Are you praying for souls to be saved? Are you praying for unity among our membership, for wisdom and discernment, for the church's leadership, for the preached word? Are you praying for our corporate witness? Are you praying for your personal holiness? As you read the scriptures, are you you pouring over the Psalms? Are you learning about the law? Are you remembering Christ's death? Are you rejoicing over the salvation that you're reminded of from Genesis all the way on to Revelation? Are you reading or praying at all? If the answer is no, then your extravagant devotion starts there. Today, Sunday, April 3rd, 2022. Start today, then hit repeat tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day after that. Because do you want to know what the most countercultural thing you can do? You want to know what the most radical thing you can do? I'll tell you what it is. It's to open up your Bible and to read it and to pray to the King of Kings. He intercedes for us right now. We pray to the Father, and Jesus is interceding for us. He's also our advocate who brings us to the Father. And the Holy Spirit lives within us, giving us the words, the groans, giving us the words to say that we find in the Scriptures. The most radical thing you can do today is to read the Scriptures and to pray. How about that for extravagant devotion? Redeemer Church, that's the most countercultural thing we can do. It must start there. To sit, to read, to pray, and to be with God every single day of your life. That's what leads to action. 
Acts of extravagant devotion always start with the mundane faithfulness of right now. Extravagant devotion always starts with faithfulness today. So do you give God the best of your time? When's the last time you took unhurried time? You weren't looking at your, your watch. You were just sitting there with, with your father praying. You were opening up the word and just lingering on that psalm or, or whatever you're reading in those days. And you're just looking at the truths of Scripture praying for yourself in light of them, praying for fellow members of the church and the membership directory, praying for your non-believing friends, praying for the elders and deacons and staff of the church. When do you just linger? When do you linger? Do you linger asking God to point out sin in your life? Or are you just in a rush to get some reading done before the work day? Or do you read it all? Acts of extravagant devotion always start with mundane faithfulness right now. Well, a second way to express our extravagant devotion today, number two, is to love our Muslim neighbors and friends during the month of Ramadan. We can love our Muslim friends and neighbors during Ramadan. What does this mean for you? I don't know. It probably means something different for each of us. It could mean just fighting through your fears and boldly sharing the gospel with a friend or a neighbor. Here's how you start. Here's maybe some helps to you that can easily bridge to the gospel. Maybe you can start out in your conversations just asking them what Ramadan means to them. Ask them what their hoping to see God do this month. Ask them how you can pray for them right now. Tell them why we fast as Christians. Use this month to take inroads to think about the cross. Instead of shrinking back from having these conversations this month, we should press in forward. And I know for some of us, this is terrifying to us to think about. We're so scared to share our faith. We're so scared to tell of the glories of Christ. And so we normally shrink back. But friends, Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy of all. Jesus is worthy for us to proclaim the excellencies of the gospel. So friend, who can you share the gospel with this month? We should all be asking ourselves that question. Well, Ramadan is also an opportunity for extravagant hospitality. Cook some food or buy a nice gift for your neighbors or friends. An extravagant one, even. Stop by their house right before iftar is a good time. If it's food, put it on a nice platter. You'll probably get some food in return, which is always a good bonus. But the goal is to see that relationship grown. Maybe you've never even met some of your neighbors. Do you know the people living down the hall from you? Who are the Muslims in your life that you don't yet know? Who are the friends that you've started a relationship with? And if you bring some food or a gift, attach a nice note to it, perhaps even your phone number, as you might not be able to talk to the owner of the house or the flat, tell them you're praying for them during this month. Be willing to 
to take a friend out for an iftar or accept an invitation to break the fast with a neighbor in their home. Be willing to inconvenience your schedule, to stay up late, to wake up early for the sake of the ministry. Use your shorter hours. If your employer gives you shorter hours, don't waste them. Would your first thought not be, oh, what can I do for myself in these hours? But would your first thought be, what can I do for Christ in these hours? Don't waste it. Don't waste this opportunity for yourself and don't waste this opportunity for your Muslim friends. Seek God's face and pray for your friends by faith. God often does miraculous works during Ramadan. Pray for it. Well, much more could be said, but in summary, Mary's extravagant devotion should move us to give our everything to Christ. To do so because her extravagant devotion points us to Christ, doesn't it? Well, the second thing we see in our passage is a stark contrast to the first, because on the one hand, we see Mary's extravagant devotion, and on the other hand, we see Judas's deceptive greed. We see them running in parallel. It's as if we should see one pitted up against the other, one compared to the other. Well, that's the second point today. Number two, deceptive greed. We see that in verses 4 through 8. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. We'll stop there. Mary takes her most precious possession, perhaps the most precious thing she owns. And what's the response? Well, we don't know what everybody's thinking. It seems in the other Gospels that others had a bit of a, a strong response to it. But we do see what Judas's response is. We see what Judas is thinking here in the text. Mary, Mary, what in the world are you doing? How could you waste all this? We could have sold it for the poor. We could have given it to the needy. Well, that sounds really nice, doesn't it? Yeah, let's give it to the poor. Let's give it to the poor. Let's not waste it on a foot washing. Now, notice what the gospel writer John reminds us of. He tells us a number of times that Lazarus has been risen from the dead, 11, and in chapter 12. But think about what he reminds us here of Judas. Because in this very moment, John didn't know all of this. John's gospel was written perhaps 30 years after this scene. But he wants us to be sure that they knew that Judas was a betrayer now. That Judas cared nothing for the poor that Judas stole from the money bag. See, hindsight is twenty twenty. They know clearly that Judas all along was a thief. But Judas portrays himself as a saint, doesn't he? You're wasting it, Mary. You're wasting it. How about the poor? Think about all the people we could serve with that money. Mary, what about the homeless? But it's all 
a lie. All of it. Judas is seeing his bank account affected in her act of devotion, and it's eating him up alive. Here's another irony in John's gospel. While Judas appears pious, it was actually Mary who is the one generous. Jesus rebukes Judas, tells him to leave her alone, verse 7, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. We don't know exactly what Jesus meant here. On first reading, it seems that Mary originally planned to use this at Jesus' burial, but we, we don't know that anyone quite understood before the cross that Jesus had to die. But one thing is for certain here, this was an act of costly and extravagant devotion, and at the same time, Jesus was approaching death. Now, remember Caiaphas last week? The chief priest. Caiaphas said some interesting things last week. Remember, he said, hey, hey, leaders, isn't it better that we take out this one man, that we kill this one man, than our whole nation die? Yes, let's take out Jesus. If we kill Jesus, then we can keep our nation together. We can keep our power and authority that's been delegated to us from Rome. Well, in saying that, he was signaling more than he knew, right? Because days later, Jesus would actually die on the cross. One man to save a nation, just not the way Caiaphas thought. Well, here, Mary was signaling more than she knew. In that culture, it was normal to spend lavish amounts of money for a funeral, including perfumes. But here, Mary was lavishly pouring out all that nard on Jesus while he was still alive. But we know now, 2,000 years later, what would happen just a few days later, that Jesus would march to the cross at Calvary and would die. You see the irony. Judas is saying, oh, Mary, you've wasted it. But we know what Judas didn't. Mary was showing extravagant devotion and anointing Jesus before his death. And now 2,000 years later, these two are remembered, aren't they? Judas, for his greed and betrayal, and Mary, for her extravagant devotion to Jesus. And by putting the two up next to each other in these verses, Mary and Judas, it's as if John is telling us there are only two ways to live. You could follow Judas's greed, or you could follow Mary in the path of devotion. Author Tim Keller puts it this way, you could sell Jesus or be sold out to Jesus. Those are the only two options, using Jesus or making yourself available to be used by Jesus. That's it. Jesus seems to agree with Mary. In verse 8, you always have the poor with you, but not me. You won't always have me here on earth. Not in the same way, at least. Now, those words might sound odd, but it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't care about 
the poor. We can see him care about the poor on a number of occasions in the Gospels. We know the Bible tells us to care and to love the poor. This is a noble task, but what Jesus is saying here is that the poor, they'll be around tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and the day after that. Jesus is saying the poor you're going to have, but I'm not going to be around here in the same way forever. Now, Judas was a fake, a wolf in sheep's clothing, a liar and a deceiver. He appeared godly, but his heart was full of greed. What can we learn from this? Well, before you start thinking about who in your life might be greedy and a lover of money, why don't we start by first examining our own hearts? The thing about greed is it's very difficult to evaluate it in others, isn't it? We'd have a hard time being the greed police or the greed detectives. It's because greed doesn't depend on how much money you make. It doesn't depend on what job you have or what car you drive or don't drive or what shoes you're wearing or where you'll go out to eat today for lunch. Greed doesn't work that way. Greed is not seen as an action of our hands, but it's a reality of our hearts. Greed is not always what we do, but it's what is deep within our hearts driving us to do what we do. The poor can be greedy just as much as the rich can be greedy and everyone in between. And not only is it hard to evaluate, but greed is deceptive. Perhaps that's why Jesus talks about money so much. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Hardly anyone ever schedules a pastoral meeting with me to confess the sin of greed. No one really does it. People don't like to admit that they have a love of money. Why? Well, for one, I think it's blinding. I think some of us just don't know that we love money, but we do. And the second reason we don't talk about it, I think for some reason, it's embarrassing to us. There's something deep down in our hearts that's, that's embarrassing about a love of money. People will come to me and confess their lust before they'll talk about their money. They'll confess to me their impatience, their marital struggles, their angry outbursts, but not greed. I've seen very few Christians who've wanted to be asked about their spending and their saving and their investing and their giving habits. Why? Why is this true? Well, here's a question to ask. And I'm not sure I can put it any more bluntly than this. Have you ever in your entire life asked somebody to give you input in this area in your life? Your entire life, however old you are, have you ever once asked someone to speak into your life, your giving? You're saving, you're spending, you're investing. Or how about the other way around? Have you asked anyone? Maybe we fail to ask for the simple reason that we don't want to be asked in return. Have you thought about that? I'll be honest, that's probably where I'm at. 
I struggle with not wanting to be asked. So I, I don't ask. Would it, what is it for you? Is it a fear? Is it an, an embarrassment? Why is this area of greed so deceptive? And why are we so unwilling to talk about it? We could even hide our greed under the, the guise of humility like Judas here, or by pointing to the future. Maybe you're thinking, once I'm wealthy, once I'm wealthier, then I'll give more, then I'll sacrifice more because I'll have more to give. Because if I keep making more and more money, then that'll become more and more money, and I'll have more to give. I've heard this many times in my 20-plus years of ministry. But see, the problem with this kind of thinking is it's never enough money. You never make enough money. You never have enough money. It's never enough because it never fully satisfies our hearts. I've seen friend after friend amass wealth only to see the truth of scriptures stand. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's because, friends, we can't worship both God and money. And so, friend, heed the words of Jesus. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What profits a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Well, friends, you gain nothing. It's going to burn. You don't get to keep it. You don't take it to the grave. You can't worship both God and money. Here we have this beautiful picture of this precious Mary, this beautiful hero of the faith and this extravagant devotion. And here on the other side, we have Judas, the deceiver, the betrayer, the one who's greedy. And we have this picture of what's beautiful and what's deceptive and dark. Extravagant devotion and deceptive greed. Let's end briefly with number three, a futile plan in verses 9 through 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Okay, Jesus is in the countryside. He's a few kilometers away from Jerusalem. He's back in the town of Bethany. He's back where Mary and Martha and Lazarus are from. Remember chapter 11, it was crazy, two-part series. We see that Lazarus is dying, and because Lazarus is dying, what does Jesus do? Well, he waits. He waits a couple extra days before he goes to his friend, and then he raises his friend from the dead. I mean, Lazarus is a dead man walking, but what happens here? I find this most humorous and most ironic Lazarus has been raised from the dead, but now what do the chief priests want to do? They want to kill Lazarus. Isn't that crazy? They want to put him to death again. This is wild. Let's put the dead guy back into the tomb. I mean, the news of Jesus, news of Jesus resurrecting Lazarus was spreading across the land. It's even worse now. People were believing in Jesus because Lazarus was a walking testimony. I told you last week that there are no boring, born-again birth stories. No one has a boring testimony, but check out Lazarus' testimony. He's like, hey, I was dead, like literally dead in the grave. 
and now I'm alive. This is the dead guy, double dead, deader than dead, and now he's walking, and now he's talking, and now he's eating, and now he's smiling, and he's reclining at table with Jesus and the disciples. News was spreading everywhere, so what do the priests do? Now at this point, isn't it, or wouldn't it be more plausible at this point that the religious leaders, these are the teachers, these are those who are supposed to communicate the law and communicate uh, the, the Old Testament to their own people, wouldn't it be more plausible to think that those religious leaders would now bow down and worship Jesus? He's gone through seven signs. We know that the Gospel of John actually says he did far more than this, right? At the very end of the Gospel of John, we see that, that the entire, uh, all the books and all the world, taking up even the whole circumference of this earth, you couldn't write all of what Jesus did, it wouldn't fit. It's too much. But what the gospel writer does is he chooses seven signs, and we've seen all seven signs, one after another, culminating in this seventh sign, right before the eyes of these religious leaders, Lazarus is risen from the dead. You would think it more plausible in that moment that they would, they would place their faith in Jesus. I mean, this was the miracle of, of miracles, a four-day-old dead guy is alive. But see, friends, they're blind. They're so blind, it almost seems impossible for them not to believe, but they were blind. They cared more about their power. They cared more about their positions. Now there's a death warrant out, not just for Jesus, but in verse 10, they are looking to put Lazarus to death as well. Why? Verse 11. Because Jews everywhere were believing in Jesus. Isn't this great? The Lazarus resurrection was a fiasco for the Jewish religious leaders. Large crowds, they're now pouring into Bethany to see the dead man walking. Lazarus' very life was grounds for faith in Christ. And so he too had to be destroyed. It was a murder plot. It was an attempt at preserving their leadership. But all it amounted to was a futile plan. Lazarus had become Jesus' star witness. I mean, it's interesting because... Lazarus comes up quite a bit here, chapter 11, chapter 12, but we can't find anything notable about Lazarus in these pages. Have you noticed that? We, we find nothing notable. We don't get a list of Lazarus's actions. We don't get to hear that he's been holy or that he's followed the law or that he's some type of religious leader. There's actually nothing notable about Lazarus in the Gospels. He wasn't raised from the dead friends because he was amazing. Now, Lazarus wasn't given new life because he had done anything to deserve life. Jesus rose him from the dead, and his new life is his very witness, and it was a gift, a free gift done 100% by the power of God. So, fellow Christian, spiritually speaking, that's what Jesus has done for you. That's what Jesus has done for you as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, our lives have been changed in such a way that we can only give glory to Christ, for Jesus has raised us from the dead. He's raised us from the dead. There's nothing we've done. We have new life like Lazarus through the work of Christ. Chapter 11, at the beginning, a dead man lives. Now we see a living man is about to die. We're about to have this exchange. His life for ours. The one who raised Jesus 
the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, Christ, is about to go to his own death. It's the Passover. You remember the Passover in the book of Exodus? If you were the people of God, you put blood on the doorpost outside of your home, and God passed over your house when he took out the firstborn sons of Egypt in that final plague. And so they would celebrate the Passover every year. And so we're a few days away from the Passover where the Jews would sacrifice a lamb in remembrance of what God did in Exodus. But Jesus is about to be the ultimate Passover lamb himself, the one who delivers people from sin and death, because that's, what's ha- that's what happened on the cross. Jesus took our place. He took all of his people's sins. He faced the full wrath and judgment of God, and he rose from the dead so that in him we might have everlasting life. Oh, friends, Lazarus lives. Jesus dies. Jesus dies so that you and I might live. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for these scriptures. We thank you for these few short verses today that we could pour our hearts over in these minutes. Oh, Lord, transform us by these very words. Jesus took our place. We thank you for your perfect plan of salvation. We know that we have imperfectly loved you. But through Christ Jesus, you've shown us the very definition of love. In response, Father, would we as a church show extravagant devotion to you? Would we love with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength? And Father, if there's anyone here who does not yet follow Christ as their Lord and Savior, would they place their faith in him today? Would they they do the opposite of what the religious leaders did? Lord, would they follow the path of Mary and not Judas? Would they follow the path of this wonderful woman who had a faith in Christ so deep that she was willing to give her all away to him. Oh, Father, would we all live like that? We pray this in the most beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.